You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Colin Mincy, Chief People Officer at Human Rights Watch, a global nonprofit and NGO of 500 staff based in New York. Human Rights Watch defends the rights of people in 90 countries, spotlighting abuses and bringing perpetrators to justice. Colin has had a long career in HR, culture and training. He serves on boards and volunteers his time helping New York City's workforce and new graduates by generating pathways out of poverty through employment opportunities. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Colin discuss how to provide a safe space at work where individuals feel safe to speak out, the most common type of workplace event where human rights violations occur, and strategies on how to deal with unfortunate issues to ensure the best path forward. Two things from the interview that really resonated were, one, Colin's advice to treat every incident like it will be front page news, and two, how sometimes, despite the best intentions, we might be doing it all wrong when trying to support a victim of a human rights violation at work. And of course, how to do better in those instances. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett. And today we've got Colin Mincy, Chief People Officer at Human Rights Watch. Colin, good to see you again and welcome back. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So, so Colin, um, I think you're our first guest that has real knowledge and focus on the human rights piece. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into that content. But before we start, you know, give us an overview. I know we we played that on the opener, your 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 corporate background, I guess, and your bit of your CV. But just tell us your story, a little bit of what got you to where you are and who and who are you. Sure, I'll try to do that without boring you. But I um you know grew up on Long Island. I um, always wanted to be a banker, and um you know, went to school, um, you know, with the, with the sort of thought process that I would, um, I'd go into banking, that I wanted to be a lawyer, then I tried to marry those things together. Um, and I started in financial services, um, working at JP Morgan, I got laid off and um, wasn't sure directionally what the next thing would be for me. And um, a woman um, by the name of Susan Olivas, who was sort of a school administrator where I grew up, um, said, you know, you have a really great personality. You should, you should try um, human, re- human resources. And, you know, I was very young at the time, impressionable, and said, I said, okay, I'll try it. She sort of taught me everything she knew. And I transitioned from banking to, to being an HR professional. And then it sort of was the first time I think that I actually caught on to something that really gave me, you know, inspiration. And so I've, I've been doing that ever since. Um, I've worked in sort of asset management in the hedge fund space uh, for quite some time, wrapped up my time at Credit Suisse and woke up one day and said, I feel like I need to be contributing my skill sets to something more meaningful than laying off folks and, and focusing on the bottom line, which is no criticism to our friends in financial services. It's just, for me, it had, um, it had run its course. And I met with a headhunter and said, you know, the next thing for me needs to be either in the education space or, or, the, or the public services space. And I was fortunate to get a, um, an opportunity uh, at the International Rescue Committee, and then the rest has been history. And I've sort of retired from financial services and very much feeling alive, sort of thriving, you know, in this uh, human rights ecosystem. And, and so I'm curious, was there a draw to, you know, 
people and culture, human rights. Did you have an aha moment versus yeah, I just kind of figured it out? Was there this one like, ah, this is really, because obviously at some point you tested the waters and said, wow, this is speaking to me. So yep. you've got, you know, your, your people and cultural, and then, you know, where, where's the lane within that role that really speaks to you? And was there a moment that, that, that kicked that off? So, you know, when I moved to the IRC and realized that I didn't, I didn't need to wear suits every day, the, um, like the connection and the collaboration between HR and people revealed something with me, within me that I had not seen before, which is you can really see the tangible impacts of your work on people and their lives. And we're talking about people with real problems, things that you can't throw a handbook and a set of policies at. Yeah, very gray, very like, wow, you know? Yes. So can, can you give us without specifics, just so people yeah. can understand what the org does? What would that look like? So, so at the IRC, we're talking about um, folks who are you know, in the field responding to uh, emergencies. Uh, they are, you know, public health experts who are making sure that, that um, children in, in marginalized places around the world are getting vaccines. And so when, when, you're, when you're working through an issue with someone whose livelihoods and lives are dedicated to that work, it's a little bit different than, you know, helping a trader, right? The meaningful aspect of walking someone who's doing that kind of work through a problem really weighs on you, right? And, and there are they're active customers and clients of human resources. They want to partner with HR for solutions. And so you become, your work and your role becomes a lot more meaningful. And, and then at the end of the day, even though you're tired and you're stressed, um, you look back and you say that because you've been able to support so-and-so, they're able and free and clear to do some incredible work for causes and people around the world. And there's something really comforting and meaningful about, about that kind of collaboration. So it's funny. It sounds like being in that type of role in that type of industry with that type of company and doing the things you do would actually be helpful from a burnout perspective because it would offset to say, wow, the, you know, there is so much purpose and um, impact in the work. Is it helpful when it, you think of it like, you know, if you think to your own experience and wow, I was overworked in finance and I was done to this, you know, there is this counter punch of, wow, this has such an impact. I'm going to keep moving. Do you think that's relevant or not? Um, I will tell you that burnout in the NGO and human rights space is more than I've ever experienced it. And the reason is not obviously because of the good feelings of doing good work, but when you start doing good work, you don't want to stop. And there are so many things happening around the world that are, that you want to focus on, that you want to, you want to resolve and fix, um, that it's difficult to actually like close your laptop and call it a day. So, so you, you go the other side, you actually, it becomes obsessive. Yeah. And, and at Human Rights Watch, our, you know, we have a real intentional focus around stress and resilience. We have in-house counselors. We have, you know, a stress and resilience task force. We, you know, we're, in, we're trying to encourage people to actually take time off and reset and reminding them that their work is too important to not bring their best selves. And so, so Brown is actually a, a really meaningful part of our HR team's portfolio. Interesting. And I know when we talked previously that 
you know, getting individuals in corporations and different places to, to feel safe about speaking out, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's got to be a lot of the work you do, because if they could get there, it would resolve some of the reactive things that, that built up and happened. Is that correct or not? Yeah. So look, we, you know, our, our job, you know, at Human Rights Watch is, you know, is to, you know, provide like rigorous and sort of targeted advocacy around all kinds of, of, of work and, and issues around human rights. And so we, you know, we report on uh, governments, uh, corporations, you know, powerful institutions all the time. And the reason we do that is because the pursuit of human rights is a responsibility for everyone. And so we want, we want people on the private, in the private sector and the public sector to, to use their voice and leverage um, their own resources to fight with us on these things that I think impact us all. So. But sorry, Colin, are you approached by an individual at a corporation that says there's a problem here or a corporation that says, I think we have a problem. Who's approaching you? So, um, so our researchers, you know, they have sort of established their sort of grassroots um, relationships. And so we're not working with corporations. We actually don't, um, we don't accept corporate money. Um, we are, you know, we're, we're an NGO that, you know, objectively um, sort of looks at issues and reports on, reports on them. But we, um, you know, people come to us, um, we're, we're one of the leading human rights organizations in the world, or we're following stories, or we've got enough relationships on the ground in places in, in the world that we sort of have our finger on the pulse of, of things that we need to sort of shine the light on. But, but when you say that, I just want to be clear. So if you see something, it, 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 it's in the, the media, you do your research, you just give it, look, here's, we've diagnosed this, here's what we think, here's how, how we think that you know, this problem can be solved, because you don't contact the company, you're like, you don't work with the company, you're like, hey, Ron, we saw the story on CNN. You know, we're sort of like, you know, like a media company, right? So we're reporting on, on the government, on the you know, on the corporation, on the on the powerful individual, whoever the abuser of human rights is, we're shining the light on what the issue is, what the circumstances are on the ground, what the impact is. And our purpose is to sort of name and claim and sometimes shame um, the the institution or the entity to to be better actors. And and we've been doing this for decades. And and we publish a world report um, that sort of, you know, by country focuses on human rights abuses and issues. And our goal is, as a result of our reporting, for the, for the behavior or the abuse to stop um, and to, to yield a, a more favorable outcome um, so that people um, aren't suffering, particularly people from, from marginalized backgrounds. So, so got it. So you're not training companies on luck. Here's how you get no. people to feel safe, but I'll go back to my comment. It's gotta be one of the key factors that um, would be proactive to getting in front of challenges that happen at the workplace. So whether it's abuse that I didn't talk about because I didn't feel safe and comfortable, and then it just blows up, it goes to a really bad place and then it's front page of the paper. So, so how do, from your experience, how do companies get people to speak up, to have the courage and balance with safety and security to, to be vulnerable uh, in, yeah. in the workplace. So internal um, internal work culture is the issue of the day, right? I know that yeah. when, 
of a pandemic and, and we're very focused on future work, but ensuring and establishing sort of transparency and accountability in the workplace is a huge issue. It is, it's the underpinning of the Me Too movement and, you know, three things. One, you know, companies need to have sort of a, a, um, a complaints mechanism, a, a place where people can anonymously, if they need to, um, report that they have observed or um, or been affected by behavior that is inconsistent with um, the company's values that, that maybe is even illegal. And you need to have a, you know, some kind of employee relations or workplace conduct person really monitoring, you know, that complaints mechanism and training people how to use it, letting people know that, that, that it's available to them um, and giving people confidence that transparency and accountability is like real, right? They're not things that we're just talking about, they're alive and well, like within the institution. The second thing is you have to have a HR function that has credibility within the organization because people are not, people are not going to go to an HR department that they don't believe, you know, advocate for fairness or are arbiters of fairness or who, who have, do not have a history or track record of effectively resolving um, employee issues and complaints. But what if they don't have HR? So, so a lot of, you know, mid-market, small business don't have HR. So it, it comes back to management relationship then, no? Yeah, that was going to be the third leg of the stool is that um, there needs to be leadership buy-in, that um, these are the values and behaviors um, that we expect from, um, from individual members and managers and, and that they want to know and hear when people um, are falling short of, of that benchmark and that they're ready to step in and be allies and advocates and supporters for people. So at our organization, at many of the organizations I've worked at, at Open Society and IRC, we tell people to go wherever you feel the most comfortable, right? And then we train managers and people. You know, we have staff advisors, we have peer supporters, uh, we have ombuds folks. We train those people on what to do if someone comes to them um, with, with an issue and how they can escalate it and manage it. So, so let's talk about that, because I'm curious on what the process, I know that's got to be gray broad, but there's got to be just key headlines in there. What does, what does the training look like? What should I do if someone comes to me and says, Ron, I've got this, this issue that I want to talk to you about. How, how should leaders, managers, HR folks deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it depends, Ron, on what the issue is, right? So if we want to get real concrete and you know, the most dangerous event for a company is a holiday party, right? So if we, if, if someone comes to someone and says, you know what, I, you know, was, you know, at the sushi station at the holiday party and, you know, so-and-so yep. touched me inappropriately, made me feel uncomfortable, you know, that is, there's a legal requirement on the part of the organization to make sure that, that you respond to that complaint. That's a, that is a, a legal um, issue. And so, what you want to do is train the people who are receiving it to sort of know how to take the complaint, right? And, and say, I'm really glad you came to me. This is really serious. And because, you know, we might be talking about a law violation here, this is something that we really need to report or escalate. And I'm happy to go with you to the Office of General Counsel. I'm happy to go with you to HR. But this is something that someone needs to know about because... We want to make sure that this doesn't happen to someone else and that there's real accountability. If we're talking about something like. Um, so I just want to play two messages back, right? It sounds like the message is 
thank you. I really yes. appreciate the courage that it took to, to bring this up. Yes. And this is a priority. Like, thank you. And this is a company priority now. And let me navigate and support you with step the next step. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I think the second piece is making sure that the organization gives this employee that's been through this experience the resources and the support, be it counseling, be it time off, whatever it might be, to make sure that their, their emotional and psychological safety um, is being safeguarded, right? And, and the best way to do that is to call out the importance of, of pursuing that level of support and most importantly is to make sure that, that there's a credible process that holds a person who put that individual into that place to account. So, okay, I feel we skipped a little faster, but I, the first thing you said is ensure that the individual that we are as corporations, organizations, whatever, supporting the individual in yep. what their needs are. Because, yep. but what's the balance with how to, you know, so I'm going to assume that, you know, that might be a third party uh I don't know, counselor or something that's going to talk to them and say, you know, based on this conversation, Colin, I, I recommend, and I'm going to recommend to management that you take a week off and, to, and be with your family, right? And something like that. And so probably having third party, if you don't have internal resources, that would, yes. that most, can kind of objectively, right, that would yeah. say, I've seen this. But let's go back. I'm just more curious um, from your perspective and what you're seeing. Once that's done, and so that conversation's had, how, how should companies deal with the issue? Now, let's go back to the issue. Let's yeah. roll full cycle on this. Yeah, so training, right? Training and development um, around appropriate workplace behavior. You know, it's, it's that. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, proactively, but let's go back. You know, Tony did this thing at the sushi bar. What are we doing now? Like, I'm actually curious how the corporation should maybe stick handle that. The conversation, who deals with, did they call the police? Like, just curious on, on process. Oh, you're, ta- you're talking about the, the, the specific complaint itself. I, I yes. what you're asking. Okay. No problem. So, um, so yeah, I mean, well, there, there needs to be a presumption of innocence, right? So um, we need to do fact finding, right? Find out from um, the subject of the complaint, you know, what their side of the story is. We typically look for corroborating witnesses, people who may have seen or heard something or people that the individual who brought the complaint may have told people either at the event or directly after the event. And we try to put together a, a sequence of, of what may or may not have happened. And, and you typically, you know, having done this a while, you typically sort of know where to look and know what to look for. Then, you know, you, you either investigate it internally, you, or you can sometimes bring in a law firm or um, an out, a third-party investigator to look into it. You make a report of, of the facts. You probably partner with the investigator and a general counsel to sort of come up with findings. Are, are people off work during this? Or is it best practice to be like, okay, Ron and Maddie, you guys are at home while we're looking it, into it, this? It depends, it depends on the situation, right? If okay. the individual, if, if it's, you know, believes that the individual is sort of pervasive and a threat to other individuals, you could you know, put them on some kind of paid suspension until the determination of, of the investigation. And then you, know, you, you try to get to the bottom of, of what may have happened. Um, you make recommendations. Is this, if it's been validated that, that this likely happened, you're probably looking at a termination and a, a police report. You know, if the person who is the complainant wants to press charges and 
And the challenge is that it, is, it takes a great deal of courage for people to come forward. And then once they come forward, they start thinking about things other than what happened to them. Um, how will this impact my career? You know, will people find out about this? What, did, what behaviors um, did I exhibit in order to encourage this behavior? All kinds of, of thoughts that should not enter the, the thought process. And so that's why it's important to keep the person supported and make sure they get um, and have the support that they need so that they have the endurance to see, see this through the process so the person can be held to account. You're going to hate this question, but my mind I goes... I question. Well, you may not like it or you may love it. We don't know. So okay. let's try it. So, because I, I just assume this happens in some cases where no cameras, no witnesses, no anything. And all of a sudden it's two people that have a very different uh, set of facts about the same event. And where do you land? Like, you know, this is me versus someone else. No, it didn't. Yes, it did. Both good people like that. I mean, I just feel like, holy crap, what do you do when that happens? How, and, and it must happen a lot. What do, what do companies do or organizations do? Um, look, um, it does happen. And, you know, this is not a science, right? You don't have a recording. Yeah, there's no snow. I understand there's not black, no black and white process, but yeah. I'm just curious how, how, what the outcomes of some of these situations are. It obviously depends on the situation, but I, I can tell you that. Let's stay on the sushi bar, right on the sushi you, bar. You look at, you look at things like, you know, the individual, the different individuals, patterns of behavior. Uh, you, you look at indicators. On both sides. On both sides. Some, uh, someone's, someone's had weird patterns of behavior, maybe complaints were, maybe none, maybe someone's complained a bunch about other things that weren't significant in the past, right? All of those things, right? Mm -hmm. um, you also look for indicators um, when you are asking questions about what happened to assess whether, you know, people are displaying behaviors that, that demonstrates that they are you know, not being truthful. So body language, what, what, what are things you've seen? What are things that... Um, eye contact... Mm -hmm. Right. You look for the consistency in stories um, when you have people with completely divergent perspectives about what happened. You you may, you know, question and interview them um, multiple times and sort of and sort of look for the consistency and in, in, in their account and how they're telling their story. But um, to be honest with you, you know, you you safeguard the the accounts and the experiences of the victim, which is always um, even. Right. If you cannot take that from them. So that so. So give me language around safeguarding. I'm curious. So, okay, Ron, you know, that's how you felt. And we respect that. And we honor that. Like, what, what does a conversation look like to safeguard how someone feels? Um, so, so for me, safeguarding means um, that at every stage of the employee lifecycle process and every stage of this unpleasant process, that people feel respected, they feel heard, that there's a genuine and authentic desire to support the individual to get to a resolution, whatever that resolution happens to be. Sometimes the person who brought the complaint isn't thrilled with the resolution, right? But, right. but you want at the end of the process for someone to look back and say, you know what? They listened to me. They treated me fairly. They, they gave me resources to help me um, sort of get through the, through this process. And you know, and after this process is over, they are committed to 
making sure that I am safe and comfortable in the workplace, right? Right. Um, and that's something you want for for all of the people that you work for. But um, but to- there are times where it's not so clear what happened. Um, but you have to keep listening. And when you've been doing this long enough, you're able to make judgments and assessments based on who people are and how they um, how they show up. And it's not a science. I'm sure I may have not gotten it right um, all the time, but my instincts are right most of the time. Well, how, I mean, it's so hard to get right. So much emotional, you know, like involvement there and feelings. It's tough to get right, you know, like it's, it's going to be so, but I love all the things you're saying. I really, uh, yeah. I, that um, it makes a lot of sense at a high level, the process in general and, and seems to check and balance. Like it just seems that if you followed that, overall playbook that that would be at least give you the best chance of getting yes. a good result for everybody, if that makes sense. Yeah. So Colin, let's switch to um, how do companies deal with it when they, they do have these explosive, like, okay, whether people felt safe or not, boom, I walk into the office tomorrow. I'm like, oh God, this thing happened. It's going to get out to the media. Hopefully not, but it is. How do we deal with that? Like what, what is, the advice on like, from a leadership perspective, board perspective, how do you deal with these masses like kaboom? So I'll tell you that the, the biggest challenge behind one of these issues is you probably have to do a, a good deal of communicating, right, with your staff. But because it's a personal issue, there are expectations of privacy on what you can actually share. And people don't really understand that. They, they, um, it's human nature to want information. And what I always tell people is that the the information you want may not be the information you're entitled to. Um, So I would say, you know, have a robust communication strategy around, you know, acknowledging um, that something's happened and that it's being dealt with. So no elephants, get out in front of that right away. Get out in front of it because these things... You know, if you're, if you're, if it is optically, if it looks like you're trying to play catch up um, for the sake of saving face, you've already lost the race, right? And the other thing I would say is treat every major problem like it's going to be a front page headline. Oh, um, I like that. It is, whether it will or won't, you should want, um, mm-hmm. want to be messaging um, that something happened and that you're dealing with it. And you should want to have some kind of, um, you know, rapid response in place to make sure that you don't allow for the situation to to percolate to an extent that it's sort of, it's well beyond your control. You know, a mistake I've made in the past when I reflect on situations, and I've 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 really had uh, I've had I feel like a lot of growth and a lot more growth to come in this in this area. And one of the things I've done in the past, which I reflecting now seems to be totally wrong, is say there was an issue with someone. You know, someone had an issue with you at work in our place of work, I've gone back to the person who's had the issue and been like, what do you want to do? What do you want done here? What would be the best outcome? And in reflection, that was the wrong thing to do. It put pressure on the person to make a decision for someone else, whether they were going to stay at the company. And, and I put them in a bad situation. Yeah, you did. But I appreciate the introspection and the vulnerability in saying that. People, people want, after they've sort of come forward, they just want the institution they want to know the institution has their back, right? And I think I think that all employees want to know that their leadership, their HR functions, whatever the function might be, that they have the ability and the expertise to make the right decision of 
the circumstances that have been presented. Right. Because then you're, you're adding a second layer, not only in my situation, the past that say pressures on you, whatever you think, even though it, the intention was good, I'll be clear. Of, I wasn't like, course, deal with it. I'm course. not dealing with this today, yeah. but right. So, but the pressure, but it also is, is, is the confidence of the organization doesn't know how to deal with these things. Yes. It's a double whammy. Yeah. And because when you come forward, many times you're coming forward because you're hoping that this doesn't happen to someone else. Right. Without right. that confidence, it actually, it compounds the angst and the anxiety of the individual. And by the way, just so that I'm not being indicting, um, the best way to handle what you're describing is to say, I'm really glad you came to me with this. Rest assured, I will take care of it. Is there anything that you need from me in the process until I can come back to you and let you know how this is resolved, right? Because then the, the real estate you're giving to the person is about like, how can I support you? Not what do you think I should do about it? I love what you're saying. Treat it like it's going to be front page of the paper. That's an aha moment for me. But the second thing is, second aha moment is, is you know, when people bring this forward, it's typically in a lot of cases to protect future individuals, employees, stakeholders from it happening again. So when I heard you say that, I, I was envisioning, that's when I was envisioning new training. So, you know, not only have we dealt with the specific issue and we have a process, now we're implementing new systems and processes and training and education to avoid this from happening again. So there, it is black and white as best we can, you know, moving forward. Um, there's no drinking at the uh, staff parties anymore. And these things have now happened to ensure that the sushi situation doesn't happen again. Like there has to be the post new proactive company training behaviors to ensure safety for others. Is that, is that like the full cycle? What I'm saying is there needs to be proactive training before the issue because, because that is preventative, right? And you want, you want to create, you know, an acknowledgement that these behaviors are, are not permissible. And these are the things that will happen um, when these behaviors make it in place. And these are, these are the processes and the complaints processes that are in place in case they do. When these things do happen, it does help inform what we need to think about in terms of how we arm our colleagues with information about their own behaviors, about how they safeguard and protect themselves. So, so I think it, it happens, it needs to happen proactively and then you also need as part of the resolution of the issue to sort of look at what the organization needs to learn from the experience. So a couple of things. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, look, I agree in perfect world, but I just, you know, think as an entrepreneur, just like a customer, you know, it, in, in some ways, and I'm, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but it's like saying, Ron, like be proactive, build process so all your customers are going to be happy, but you don't know what you don't know. You can't build for the future. The company changes New yeah, customer I'm, challenges I'm not, come up. I'm not saying that the that doing it upfront absolves you from the issues, right? Yes. The issues are still going to be there. Right. Um, what I'm saying is I think that there is a likelihood that that doing it upfront and proactively lessens the um, the the amounts of the issue. For sure. So so if I if you were to start a company today and you wanted to be proactive about some key things, because that's going to be very broad to your point. You're not going to cover off everything. We don't know what we don't know. But if you were going to focus in a few key areas, and I think this is important for the listeners to say, do what, can I check and balance these key headlines? Yep. Where should you have, is it racism, sexual assault? Like where are the key things that we should be 
the baseline, you should at least have this in place to be proactive and, and because these are the most common things that are happening. So I believe that as part of an onboarding experience and leadership teams should be focusing on workplace harassment, both bullying um, slash hostile work environment and sexual harassment, DEI, um, particularly around unconscious bias, and, and then the third thing that, that's really important is just having sort of a mechanism on, on how people can report um, issues, um, whether they're actual complaints that need to be investigated or things that you know, they want to shine the light on for, for leadership to focus on. I think those three things need to be in place. And, and every couple of years, I think you should be doing sort of a refresher to make sure that they're at the forefront of people's minds. I love that. You know, I'm that was very helpful. Thanks, Colin. So let's go to you for, for a moment, knowing what you know today, and you've been doing this for a while now, what is something you wish you could talk to yourself five years ago? The world's changed so much too. What are some of the lessons that you learned? Like, ah, geez, you know, I, I always talk about this in, um, you know, for entrepreneurs, the difference between being interested and interesting, you know, most younger entrepreneurs try to be interesting and then that you lack curiosity, you don't listen, and then you need you try to convert to interested, which is a very different, uh, similar word, but different outcome. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I just turned 40 a couple of months ago. And the one thing that I, I have learned today that I wish I knew five or 10 years ago is that, you know, this being the hamster on the wheel um, when it comes to work is not, not a good way to live. It's good to be ambitious and diligent, but I... If I could do some things over again, I would work less and invest in myself more. Mm. Um, and the the investment in yourself could be professional development. It could be related to your career. I'm not talking about bungee jumping and kayaking, you know, in 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 Salt Lake City. I'm I'm, I'm just saying, um, having real tangible and concrete boundaries about about how you're spending your time. So that's that's one thing. And the second thing is that now that I'm in a position of leadership, I wish I had afforded the people who, who I was led by a little bit more grace because it is, it is a job that, sure, it's rewarding um, to be in a place of leadership, but it's not always, it doesn't always feel rewarding. Um, people are harsh on leaders. I, I, I feel that sometimes too. You know, we're not looking for a pat on the back, but there's yeah. a lot on the line. There's a lot of, you know, and, and, and kind of to your earlier point, people kind of just have this, expectation that you're going to be the superhuman that's going to do everything right you know yeah we're flawed people too and we don't always have the answers we get scared we feel anxious at the end of the day like we just like everyone else i think we just try our best right and we try to learn from our mistakes we try to make sure we're active listeners so that we are responsive and responsible to the people that are entrusted to us but we're humans and then the third thing that I wish I had told myself a little bit earlier in my career is that I probably would have made a lot less mistakes if I wasn't so obsessed about making mistakes and that it's okay to not get it right as long as you have a level of introspection about what went wrong and what you could do differently. And as long as you don't keep repeating the same old mistakes, right? So those are the three things that I wish I could tell a younger, less grayer Colin Lindsay. That's a, that's a mic drop moment, Connor. These were great. Those were really you know, powerful messages. Good for you. Uh, and thank you. I, I got a lot of that myself. So look, I want, I want to wrap with future of work. How do you, where do you see, you know, human rights and these things 
um, and, and how, you know, how it impacts corporations and how we manage. How do you see, what, what does the future look like? Um, well, workers' rights are human rights, right? Um, so we could start there. We're looking at, at trusting our employees to make decisions that are right for themselves, um, their health, and their families. We are trying to carve out ways that choice can be a part of, of how people's composition of work you know, uh, reveals itself. And, and we're trying to make sure that the dignity, right, the dignity of work doesn't get lost um, because we're sort of in this COVID moment. And I think what that means, Ron, is we have to be tolerant um, that not everyone's going to feel comfortable coming back to work. We have to accept the fact that people were perfectly able to contribute and in many cases contribute more or better working um, from home um, than they were in the office. And we have to listen um, to people's individual circumstances and let that sort of be the guidepost of how, how the, their future work looks like. And then this, the last piece of it, and I, I swear I'll stop talking, is there are a few things that happened in the pandemic that we should not stop doing. We should not stop asking people how they're doing, how they're faring, how their um, work is being prioritized, and whether there's anything we can do for them. Um, I call it going beyond the work. Um, you know, if your check-in is all about what you did and what you didn't do, then you're not on the right team and you're probably not in the right organization. And then the other piece is, you know, the way that we try to make everyone feel included um, on, on those dreaded teams and Zoom calls, um, we should continue to do, whether the people are in the room or at home. And, um, and those are our practices and things that I think we fine-tuned um, in the pandemic and that I hope continue. Colin, that was awesome. And, and look, thanks for the reminder. We certainly have dropped the, how are you doing? We, we, I, I think a lot of corporations will be guilty of this in organizations. That was a headline when you started. Or it took a minute, then people added it, and then it's gone away now. And we'll, we'll certainly uh, do that. So thank you for the reminder. And Colin, thanks for dropping in today. This has been an awesome conversation. I've learned a ton. I have three pages of notes and things that we'll execute in our own company. So thank you for your counsel. That. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, thanks. And I hope you're going to have time. I'm jealous that I can't join you for a coffee because I'd like to continue the conversation, but I hope you have enough time. We're giving you five minutes back, my friend. I'm going to delay my next meeting to make sure I go and get it. All right, Colin. Thanks again. All right, take care. For more information about Colin, please connect with him on LinkedIn. For more information about the Scaling Culture podcast or the Scaling Culture Masterclass, go to scalingculture.org. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back next week with another incredible guest.